This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Action Network Podcast. And it is good. From the red carpet arrivals to glamorous after parties, it's the most magical night of the year. And today, the Action Network honors Hollywood the best way we know how, by helping you profit off the monumental creative achievements of others. And what's more Hollywood than that? Let's gamble on the Academy Awards. It's that time of year again, Oscar season. Welcome to the Action Network podcast, Academy Awards Gambling Spectacular. I am your host, Chris Raybon, and I'm joined today by Colin Wilson and Katie Richcreek of the Action Network, and we are going to be breaking down everything that you need to know to bet the 2021 Academy Awards. We're going to go through all of the categories. I'll give you guys a little roadmap right now. We'll start out with the actor categories. Then we will get into some of the the song and the best original score. We'll go through the craft categories and then we'll uh, round it out with supporting actors, the screenplay awards, which are always great. And then we'll talk about best picture, which has been a very profitable category to bet these last few years. So uh, there will be a few categories we're not going to get into because we like the favorite, no underdog action and they're not major categories. So for best documentary short, we like love song for Latasha at minus 305. For best animated short, we like If Anything Happens, I Love You at minus 335. For best documentary feature, we like My Octopus Teacher at minus 500. For best international feature, another round at minus 1250. And best animated feature, Soul at minus 5000. No real value there. We're not going to waste time talking about it. What we are going to do is we're going to get right into Best Supporting Actor and the nominees for Best Supporting Actor. Daniel Kaluuya from Judas and the Black Messiah is the front runner at minus 2,500. You have Paul Racy from Sound of Metal at 12 to 1. Sasha Baron Cohen from The Trial of the Chicago 7 at 12 to 1. Leslie Odom Jr. from One Night in Miami at 17 to 1. And Lakeith Stanfield from Judas and the Black Messiah at 33 to one. Katie, I'm gonna start with you. Where are you going for best supporting actor? So Daniel Kaluuya is obviously a heavy favorite in this category and for rightful reasons. He has all of the precursor awards on his side. One really interesting note about this category though is that he and Lakeith Stanfield obviously both starred in Judas and the Black Messiah. That makes them the 20th pair of actors to start in the same movie and also be nominated for the same category. Um, Historically, one of the two in a pair usually prevails because they have more screen time. And in this case, Stanfield actually has the edge. But ultimately, you know, Daniel Kaluuya is the heavy favorite for a reason. This is his award to lose. I think even at these super juiced odds, this is where the betting value lies. 
It's not a question of violence or non-violence. It's a question of resistance to fascism or non-existence within fascism. First off, it's great to be back with you guys because I thought we killed it last year, even though, you know, Parasite took a little bit of money from me. The Cynthia Revo thing had me crying for a week. It, uh, you know, so I- I'm glad that we're back. We're going to make some money off of this. Uh, so as far as best supporting actor goes, no one from Minery is nominated in this category, which means I don't have to bet any money on it because I just want everybody to know that I'm going to be completely bipartial in this podcast as a person that is living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the movie was shot from Northwest Arkansas, where the movie was, the scenery was to be. Yes, we all carry crosses down dirt roads and preach about Jesus. That's where I come from. Now, can't bet on that here in Best Supporting Actor. I am going to go with Daniel Gluya. Uh, the historical analysis here, I mean, is to watch for an older nominee receiving a lifetime award. So there's no one here that applies to that. Paul Racy is in this list. He's 73 years old. His body of work includes Waiter at a, in a movie called Rent-A-Cop, Paparazzi in She Wants Me, Bad Guy in the Bruce Lee story. This is not a guy that wins this award. You know, only one of the 27 experts didn't pick Daniel Kaluuya for this. He won BAFTA, American Film Institute, Critics' Choice, DFW Film Critics, Golden Globes, National Board of Review, and the SAGs. Where did he lose? He lost in one spot. Daniel Kaluuya did not win in the Washington, D.C. area Film Critics Association where they went with Leslie Odom Jr. Take Daniel Kaluuya here to win this. Easy money to lay. And I don't think he's ever going to make a personal trip himself to the Washington, D.C. area Film Critics because of that snub. You know, watching these movies, I thought Leslie Odom Jr. deserved more love this award season. I thought he did a really outstanding job as Sam Cooke in One Night in Miami. I think if there was anyone that would probably get that kind of, you know, he kind of deserves it, maybe not just for this movie, but more of an achievement thing, it would be Sasha Byron Cohen. You know, he's also uh, got Borat's subsequent movie film going on and pretty good actor who's, you know, really kind of coming into his own uh, these last few years. So, you know, he's at plus 1200, but here's why. Uh, I would have to go with Daniel Kaluuya as well. Uh, you talked about the experts, Colin. For those that don't know, uh, we look at goldderby.com and they track their expert predictions. They track their editor predictions. They also track the predictions of their most accurate users. And so we have a lot of data going back about a decade on you know people that are kind of inside you know the sharp money, so to speak, in the industry and how accurate they are. So I, I incorporate that into my models um, as a main variable uh, for a lot of these. And um, eight of the nine uh, editors, number one choice, uh, have won um, since they started tracking. And the, the one exception was in 2016, Mark Rylance. <laughs> and his only other win that year of relevance was the BAFTA. Well, Daniel Kaluuya won the BAFTA. I don't really see any way, given all the precursors that uh, Daniel Kaluuya is not winning this award. Minus 2,500, the odds are about right. You know, it's above 95%. So I don't expect many people to bet on this, but uh, unfortunately, no underdog love for uh, best supporting actor this year. And let me say this, Chris, because we, if you didn't listen to the pod last year, we talked about this last year. It needs to be mentioned here as we go through these odds. 
Following the Gold Derby experts and editors is a much more trusting process. And following Oscar Metrics by Ben Zosmer, that is a much more trusted process than steam chasing. For the people that may just be with into this is novice betters, more so film aficionados explain theme and steam chasing. I am looking at the best supporting actor and uh, Leslie Odom Jr. He's listed at, you know, 17 to one odds, but I wake up on Oscar more the morning of Oscars and he's four to one odds. Holy shit. Somebody knows something. Something has come out. Obviously this is the winner. It has to be it. No, I believe what Price Waterhouse Cooper. They're the ones that uh, control the ballots here. There yeah. is absolutely zero leaks. The only time there is a leak is when the Academy Award accidentally tweets it out like they did last year. <laughs> or Warren Beatty can't read a damn card. Guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a, this, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Come on, this is not a joke. Come this on. is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. There's no leaks. So when we say Oscar metrics is a place to look for analysis, as we say Gold Derby editors and experts, don't chase steam. Yeah, and of course... Check out actionnetwork.com. I know you have your write-up out. I'll have my, you know, category by category write-up out with um, more, probably even more detail than we'll go into uh, in the pod for some of these. So um, be sure to check the, those out. But yeah, there's, it's, if the lines are moving, it's just because books are getting money on a certain, um, you know, candidate, but that doesn't mean there's any kind of week or anything like that so yeah don't go chasing numbers just because you know things start shifting or anything like that like when you listen to this and, and make your bets probably the sooner you make them the better anything that's really worth betting on the, the lines are probably just going to move in that direction and you're going to get less value but um yeah don't buy into the hype with any kind of crazy theme move that was great advice let's move on to uh, best supporting actors most every actress and actor i know wants to build a lasting body of work the five women nominated Best Supporting Actress have done just that. And the nominees are Oot Jung Un from Minari at minus 500. The front runner, Maria Baklava for Borat, subsequent movie film at plus 375. Glenn Close from Hillbilly Elegy at plus 1,000, so 10 to 1. Olivia Coleman from The Father at 20 to 1. And Amanda Seyfried from Mank. 33 to one. What's it looking like here, Colin? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go with Yoon here. I've already stated that Minari is my favorite movie of the year, but that's not the reason for the handicap here. Yoon has been winning awards since 1969. She was named new best new talent at the TBC Drama Awards. She is a staple in the film industry uh, for decades. Uh, she's received over 40 nominations in this role as grandma in Minari, and she's had 34 victories. That includes BAFTAs, SAGs, anywhere that she's eligible, right? Because some of these film associations really, we'll get into that later, like Minari was just not allowed to be nominated. So the Critics' Choice Award did take Bakalova, uh, heads up over Yoon. So that shouldn't really be a consideration. The Critics' Choice Award is not really an indication here. The one area of concern that I have is that if you get the analysis out of Oscar metrics, it says that the higher the billing in the credits, the more screen time you have, and that is directly correlated to Best Supporting Actress. Yoon was billed as fifth. The rest of the nominees was billed as second. But you know what? The rest of those nominees didn't drink a bowl of piss 
because they thought it was Mountain Dew and they didn't watch professional wrestling and teach their kids to gambling on card games. This movie not only is in my hometown, reminds me of my grandma. Her, her performance, I thought, was spectacular and she will be rewarded. Colin is off in his own world, reminiscent of he's got some type of Oedipus grandma complex going on. I don't even know. But uh, <laughs> you got any, any long shots here? I do have a long shot, although I did want to quickly say that in addition to being a fan of Colin Wilson's grandma, who has made an appearance <laughs> on action content before, I also think this is Yoon's award to lose. But I do have a long shot, and it has absolutely nothing to do with her performance in Hillbilly Elegy, because I did not watch it. It's the only Netflix film that's nominated for any award that I have not seen, because it just got dunked on all year. Um, and there are really no precursors that are pointing to this. So this long shot has absolutely everything to do with narrative. But this is Glenn Close's eighth Oscar nomination, but she's never won. And right now that means she's the only actress with that many nominations who has never actually won an acting award. So again, this is a true long shot because we're abandoning those historical trends in favor of a narrative. But I do believe there is some weight to that when we're talking about the Academy, especially considering the proximity of when Close was upset by Olivia Coleman for Best Actress a couple of years ago when Close was the unanimous favorite going into that award show. Um, and now Olivia Coleman is also in this category. So I think that will be front of mind for quite a few voters. And listen, if some of you millennials and Gen Zers out there are thinking about having an affair, why don't you go look up Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction? Like I will never, ever, ever, ever do anything outside of my relationship because her, her performance in that she's a fantastic performer. She's been nominated so many times. She's a powerhouse in the, in the industry. So it, it, it's definitely a good long shot bet. You don't get it. You just, you don't get it. I just want to be a part of your life. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. I'm just going with you because I look back at the numbers and this is one where the, Gold Derby experts and editors have been the most accurate, uh, more so than pretty much any other category. Um, 100% uh, of the editor's number one choice uh, has won the award and 100% of the experts' number one choice have won the award. They've never diverged. Uh, they are both in agreement with Woo Jung-un, uh, 11 of 11 editors, uh, and about 90-ish percent of the experts. So she's the number one for both. It hasn't let me down yet. So I will be uh, laying the juice here at minus 500. Although I must admit, I did get her at plus money like months ago, like when the odds uh, first uh, posted, she was sitting there at like plus like 120 or something like that. And I was like, oh, this is off. So obligatory mentioned everybody out there, you know, going forward, if you're into this stuff, uh, don't forget to just check the odds and, you know, when they first come out, even if you're not going to go hard, you might see a couple of things that you like, and there's always going to be value um, early on. So um, definitely do that. that. Yeah. To tap into that, Chris, I know <clears throat> the article that I wrote for action network, I took Nomadland 33 to one to win best picture last April. And so there will be odds for the following year coming out. And if you can find those odds, you need to find the ones that have already been critically acclaimed by Sundance, by the ones that are the film festivals, and you need to look at the powerhouses uh, that, that are in the best actor, best actress, and best picture, because that's when you want to buy those odds, right? Now, I know limits are $25, $50, maybe $100, like WWE-type shit, but that's the perfect time to strike. Now, sitting around with the Nomadland 33 to 1, you got some work to do. You're sitting around with the Yoon 
uh, plus money. You got you got you got money to spend on others. Absolutely. And you're going to need it. Like if you really want to get into betting some of this, because you're going to have to weigh juice on some of these. If you, you know, just because they're such locks and there's only so many categories. Right. So, you know, I, I usually max bet even the, the high juice ones, you know, if I if I consider it a value. So, yeah, um, definitely want to check those odds early. Uh, let's go to best original song. And the nominees are Speak Now from One Night in Miami at minus 155. EOC from The Life Ahead at plus 225. Pusevic from Eurovision Song Contest, Song of Ice and Fire at plus 350. Fight for You from Judas and the Black Messiah at 25 to 1. And Hear My Voice from The Trial of the Chicago 7 also at 25 to 1. Colin, what do you think about this one? So I think my one hesitation here is that there just wasn't, an, uh, you know, there's a huge number of experts that had it in fourth and fifth place. And, you know, if that sways any other votes for it not to get any first place votes, uh, you know, that there's a reason why it's a dog price. I, I believe it should be priced better than plus 350. I mean, this really should be a plus 150 plus 200 type bet. Uh, so I would bet it up until there. EOSA is wildly overpriced. I mean, by the expert and editor picks, nobody nobody likes that song. It's like zero out of like 27 of them. Like two of them picked it. I don't know why that's plus 225. According to the experts and editors, that thing should be like plus 800, like eight to one. So, yeah, I, I definitely think here it's either the favorite or it's going to be Husevic. Yeah, I've got to go with Husevic. I mean, we're looking for value here. And if you look at the the editors, eight of nine Number one choices for the editors have won, and Husevic has eight of eleven editor votes. So you know that's just under you know that's just under eighty percent of the of the votes, and that's a big discrepancy. You don't usually see a front runner for the you know the experts or the editors that isn't also the betting favorite. And so uh, you know eight out of nine that those are great odds. You know eight out of eleven. Editors, those are great odds. So uh, it's sitting there at plus three fifty. Uh, I would bet that down at even money, uh, honestly, because it should be the favorite at this point. Now, I think Speak Now is definitely still in a conversation, but it's overvalued. That's how you have to look at it. It's at minus one fifty five. That implies about a sixty percent chance of uh, of winning, and at most, I think you know it's fifty fifty between between that and Husevic. So um, Husevic our first real value plus money bet uh, that we're going to discuss today, go out there and get it plus three fifty. Uh, I love it. Let's go to best original score. And the nominees, we have soul at minus 1667 mank at eight to one Minari 17 to one the five bloods, 25 to 1 and news of the world also at 25 to 1 do we see any anything sticking out here for best original score colin well i know news of the world which was like the only movie that was in the theaters in december that pro that soundtrack left no impression on me whatsoever like when i heard 1917 last year i was absolutely you know out of my gourd the running scene at the end the music for the entire story was perfect Joker, perfect. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure besides Minery that we've got that here in this category. So we're, I mean, we're defaulting to Soul here. Soul has been like the favorite since, I mean, the, the movie ever came out. 
I'm just wondering, and maybe you can explain it to me. I'm wondering why the odds are so low for such a heavy favorite. Like it should be higher, right? I mean, probably because no one's betting it as it is at minus 1667 and probably two people listening are actually going to bet it. But uh, it looks like a pretty safe bet to me looking at the numbers. Uh, if we, we look at the goldderby.com editor accuracy, 100% of their number one choices have gone on to win the award for best original score. And it's unanimous with the, with the editors this year. Uh, every single editor uh, that has weighed in ha- has gone for Seoul. You know, for, it's the same thing for the experts. And uh, their, their hit rate is pretty high as well. So um, I really see no reason to, to get fancy here. It just depends on how much juice you're comfortable weighing. You know, 1667 is a lot. It does, you know, what is that? Like you're going to weigh a hundred hours and make a you know, like 15 bucks or something. So it's not, uh, it's, it's not great, but if you're so inclined, it should be a safe bet. I find it extremely interesting that Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, his name is billed on two of the songs in this category, both Soul and Mank. I mean, he's winning either way. You know, Mank yeah. is the number one, you know, runner up. Eight to one, I don't think it, it's going to win at all but uh yeah he's got the top two but let's move on to best live action short and the nominees the letter room is the favorite at minus 167 and we have two distant strangers at plus 150 feeling through at 12 to 1 the present at 12 to 1 and white eye at 33 to 1 okay So I don't have a take here, but this is a good category to highlight what we discussed earlier, and that's how these odds evolve over the course of the season. So nominations came out about this time last month. We captured them at the beginning of April, and since the beginning of April, YI's odds have fallen even further from 25 to 1 to 33 to 1, while the letter room has held steady as the minus money favorite. So just another example of, of, you know, even if you don't get in on it as early as the April before after Sundance, you still have time shortly after the nominations come out to capitalize on some value. Yeah. And I, you should, we should point out that the letter room was initially minus 230. It's down to minus 167. So essentially it's odds are getting worse and I'm on board with that. I don't think it should be the prohibitive favorite uh, I would bet on two distant strangers at plus 150 and with a little bit of a, a hedge on long shot feeling through at 12 to one of the editors. Number one choices, only five of their num- of their number ones have won. So this is a category where uh, even the experts tend to have a little bit of, str- uh, you know, a, a tough time predicting and it creates a lot of variance. And so, so we see just under two thirds of the, of the editors going with the, letter room and for the experts they're even more split they're actually predicting two distant strangers as the favorite with 50 percent of the expert vote then the letter room is number two with 35 percent and then feeling through uh has 15 percent. so there's value you know assuming those odds are uh more or less how the you know the true odds which uh, again you know all these tend to align pretty closely so 15.4% for feeling through um, you're getting value when you're betting that at 12 to one, because those implied odds are only about uh, 7.7%. So you have, you're getting about two X to value and it's a long shot. So you don't even have to put like a whole unit on it or you could just put a, you know, a, 
fraction of a unit on it, whatever you like, but two distant strangers, that should be the favorite according to the experts. But the experts have been more predictive than the editors in this one. And they're saying two distant strangers is the favorite. And we're getting that at plus 150. So for my money, the best live action short at the 2021 Academy Awards. The Oscar goes to either two distant strangers at plus 150 or failing through at plus 1200. And before we move on here, we want to show some appreciation for our sponsor, Athletic Brewing Company. The 1986 film Back to School did not win Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but it did give us the great Rodney Dangerfield line, bring us a pitcher of beer every seven minutes until someone passes out, then bring one every 10 minutes. And while a person drinking themselves under the table is always good for a movie laugh, it's never good for your bankroll. Plus, you'll never rub shoulders with the Hollywood elite if you're too trashed for the after party. And that's where our friends at Athletic Brewing come in. Because for years now, Athletic Brewing has been making some of the most flavorful beer money can buy, brews that celebrate the flavors and innovations of the craft beer tradition, but without the alcohol. So if you wanna take it easy on the booze and keep your gambling wits about you, Athletic Brewing's award-winning beers are a great option just head to athleticbrewing.com, check out their selection and place an order using code ACTION15 and it gets new customers 15% off your first order. And if you order two or more six packs, shipping is always free. That's athleticbrewing.com. Use the code ACTION15 on that first order and enjoy great taste while keeping your gambling edge. Let's move on to best production design. And the nominees, Mank, big favorite at minus 560. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom at six and a half to one. Tenet at eight to one. News of the World at 20 to one. And The Father at 20 to one as well. Colin, what you got here? Yeah, I mean, the historical pecking order for this category is drama, musical, sci-fi. Really, we need to focus on, for me, the dramas. And the dramas here are, are Mank, who production design was done by Donald Graham Burt. He won this same award for a personal favorite of mine, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Is there a case for Nathan Crowley here in Tenet? Because Tenet is a sci-fi movie. Uh, so that is definitely a strong contender. If you look at Nathan Crowley, you know who is in charge for production design for that movie, he's been nominated in the past for First Man, Dunkirk, Interstellar, the Dark Knight, The Prestige, fantastic movie. This is his sixth time, and he's listed at eight to one odds. So if there's somebody that can reach up and get it, it is sci-fi. It falls below the drama category. I think this is Mank all the way. But Crowley's sixth time to be nominated is what caught my eye. Donald Graham Burt, somebody might vote in and say, this dude got it for a curious case of Benjamin Button. Crowley's on his sixth nomination. So... For me, Mank is the Mank is definitely the play here because it's it fits the right genre. But Nathan Crowley for Tenant, this is a sixth time. And so I think that needs to be taken into account. Yeah, I mean, Tenant did win at the Art Directors Guild for, for fantasy design, but Mank won for period design over Ma Rainey uh, and News of the World. But more importantly, uh, the experts, the editors, unanimously, like there's not even one who diverges from Mank. And anytime it's been unanimous, 
it's been it's hit it's 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 not even been a question so uh, this is not one of those years uh, and this is not like the last category where you know there's like two different values here it's mank or nothing so minus 560 not a very attractive bet but uh, i don't really see how you could go any other way um mank is again it, it's got the head-to-head wins over uh ma rainey it's got the, the the expert support uh unanimously so for my money best production design at the 2021 academy awards and the oscar goes to mank at minus 560. let's keep it going with best costume design and the nominees, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the favorite at minus 500. And you have Emma at three and a half to one. Mank, 10 to one. Pinocchio, 25 to one. And Mulan, 33 to one. Katie, what's this, what's this costume design looking like? So I know Colin is about to rip into costume designer awards in a little bit. So I will leave that mostly to him. But Generally, what folks should know is that there is an argument against how much those precursors really matter. But despite all of that, um, and despite the film I'm about to mention not getting any of those precursor awards, I do like the idea of placing a small wager on Emma as a long shot in this category. Like Ma Rainey, Emma is a period piece, which has historically been a huge advantage in this category. But unlike Ma Rainey, which is really carried by strong acting, Emma's entire draw is really its colorful costumes um, that were designed by Alexandra Byrne. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Um, But she won this award back in 2008 for similar work in Elizabeth, the Golden Age, which was one of six winners over the past 15 years that featured period costumes in stories that focused on aristocracy. So again, we don't really know what's gonna happen here. At least that's my belief, but I am placing a small bet on Emma. Yeah, we, we absolutely don't know what's gonna happen here. And I guess this is a shout out to the Costume Design Awards and the Guild. Get your shit together, all right? So at the Academy Awards, we have Best Costume Design, one category. What the Costume Designer Awards do, the CDG, they split that up into three different categories, okay? Contemporary, period, and fantasy. And what you should know is, is that gives them 15 different movies to be nominated for three awards. You would think that would give us some sort of indication about who's going to win the Academy Award, right? Don't you think that if you were nominated and won the, consume, the Costume Designer Award that you would move on to the Academy? Well, let's review, all right? Oscar last year went to Little Women. Wasn't even nominated. So it was just ineligible. That's different from it getting snubbed. And that's the problem within itself. But just to be clear, like it didn't get snubbed. It just was ineligible. 2017, (laughs) Phantom Thread took home the Oscar. Nothing at the Costume Designer Awards. I'm sure it was ineligible too. uh, Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, why? 2016, Oscar to Fantastic Beasts. And where to find them, man. I love that movie. But nothing at the Costume Designer Awards. I might look for some couch change and just throw some money at Pinocchio. I mean, I, we're all going to end up getting our money sunk into Disney somehow with the reopening after the pandemic. So I might as well just throw some money on Pinocchio. I don't know. I don't know if it's smart. I see another one here with the editors in unanimous agreement for Ma Rainey. That's never lost. 
in in the nine years of tracking the the prediction accuracy of the editors. Uh, you know, for for a movie to even be in consideration, it has to get at least one editor vote. Like no movie with with no editor votes has ever won, and they only, you only have Ma Rainey here. So I trust you know these you know astute individuals there at Gold Derby to kind of parse through this confusing like costume design guild precursors. But I mean, Ma Rainey did you know they got they got they won at Costume Designers Guild. They got the Period Award. They got the BAFTA. They got the Critics Choice. So it's looking pretty good for them. It's actually one of those years where you're, you're getting the uh, the front runner actually, I guess, eligible. But maybe it's just like it's like I feel like I picture these costume des- whoever runs the costume designers guild is like somebody from like a different like the 1600s, just just like ah oh, the costume designers guild, and like they just like <laughs> like they're on a whole different calendar. And, and that's why just like movies come out and it's like two years and the eligibility is all messed up. They're on like a they're not even on like a 365 day fiscal year like it's just all so backwards but my rainy minus 500 yeah, so no guac on my chipotle bowl this weekend i'm going <laughs> to use that extra couch change and i'm just going to completely fade the costume designer awards every year <laughs> i don't blame you let's go to a somewhat related award best makeup and hairstyling and the nominees for best makeup and hairstyling guess who Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, minus 670. Pinocchio, five and a half to one. Hillbilly Elegy, 12 to one. Mank, 20 to one. Emma, 25 to one, rounding out the five nominees. Colin, you're going to keep going here or we're going to give him a break? I'm down on Mank per Oscar metrics. Most nominations pay off in this category. That's, you know, that's what the most, uh, that's the biggest indicator here. No previous winning history here for, for Gigi Williams, Kimberly Spiteri, and Colleen Labaff for Mank. But the same applies for Ma Rainey's crew, Sergio Lopez Rivera, Mia Neal, and Jamika Wilson. They haven't won anything either, so there's no historical effect there. You know, I mean, if you're looking for something super outside the box, Mark Coulier, is, uh, he's on the crew for Pinocchio, and he's won two previous Oscars for the Iron Lady in 2011 and Grand Budapest Hotel in 2014. So uh, nothing strong here. Uh, I think Ma Rainey definitely fits the bill. It's just a movie you watch and you say that that is the best of the year. But at the same time, I mean, it's still in the back of my head that, you know, Mark Coulier has won this before and, and go by Oscar metrics. It's the most nominations and that would be Mank. So I definitely at, uh, at the number that it's currently sitting at in the market is, is worth something. Real quick for the people that may not even be familiar with uh, Oscar metrics, explain uh, what that is and who, you know, who's the, the creator and all that. Yeah, Oscar Metrics is a book that was written by Ben Zosmer. I went to the history in each of these categories and looked at analytics in a different light from, uh, you know, it takes the winners and then it does a backwards engineering about, is there any advanced analytics that tells me whether or not there is an indicator of who is going to win this award. We're going to get into this with best actress, right? There's just an age range that you don't bet. There is a certain level, whether it's drama or sci-fi, there's certain things that you just don't bet. 1917, it was spot on last year with 1917. Let me give you an example of where Oscar metrics was key. 1917 did not have anybody nominated in best actor, best actress, best supporting. Uh, You have to have these things to win certain categories. Uh, Oscar Metrics was a, a perfect book that was put together by Ben Zosmer. Uh, it's definitely worth a read. We'll talk about this later though. The Academy voting base is getting bigger. Categories are getting a little bit more volatile like last year with Parasite. 
So we'll see how it does this year and if, it, if Oscar Metrics holds up before we podcast next year. Yeah, and it's definitely an invaluable re- resource for somebody that's really looking to kind of dive into these things and just kind of giving you ideas of where to look. You know, I, I still, you know, first and foremost, I'm always going by, um, I'm, I'm going to incorporate the, the prediction accuracy because that's like a, a, a great way to kind of get a accurate prediction based on, you know, recent and relevant data. And then, but like the Oscar metrics, you know, they, they, they kind of give you things to add to your model that you may, like you said, Rotten Tomatoes score, runtime for some of the short films, um, you know, which precursors, you know, you, to, to kind of pay attention to in situations where things aren't as clear. So um, great book. Be sure you guys go and check it out. As far as this category, yeah, I, I, it does stick out, you know, 26 of 38 films, 68.4% with the most nominations have won. That's Mank. But that, that's a pretty wide data set. So, you know, I do, you know, also look at the, the more recent data over the past decade, look at the prediction accuracy uh, on Gold Derby, and no film with less than 26% of the uh, vote from the Gold Derby experts has won. Now, right now, Ma Rainey has 93%. Uh, Mank and Hillbilly Elegy rounded out. It's not really looking like one of those years where there's going to be an upset. It's looking like more like that one third of the time when the film with the most nominations does not win. I believe that's actually what happened last year too. I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, I was on Joker. I'm not sure if you guys were too, but I, I believe that did not win in this category last year. So um, I'm I'm going with Ma Rainey. It's just you know the, these these Gold Derby experts in some of these craft categories they're they're spot on. This has been another one. It's near unanimous. Uh, there is one editor, uh, so like about uh, like nine percent of the editors you could say uh, is on Pinocchio. You know sometimes they update these things. You know weeding up to the to the uh, to the show, so that might change. Might go back to eleven of eleven, but uh, just wanted to point that out there. But I see it. I'm going Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and then with a little bit of hedge on Mank, just because I, I think that, you know, 68.4 percent uh, with the most nominations uh, have won. That that's that's enough, you know, to more than two thirds for me to say, OK, you know, Mank at, at, at 20 to one, you know, I'll, I'll throw a little something on there with the hedge on this huge chalk favorite. But uh, I, I think. It's going to be Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And, and you're going to get that with the experts, right? Because Mark Coulier's won twice, won an Oscar twice, and he's did Pinocchio. So I obviously, you know, an expert or an editor that knows that is going to say, well, this this has to be it. So I I mean, there's an explanation for that one. But yeah, I think absolutely Ma Rainey and, and everything with the editors and experts is, is the pick. Yeah. And, you know, when you have a diversion like this, you can – you can hedge, and we have a hedging calculator at actionnetwork.com. It's also available in the award-winning Action Network app where you can enter in the odds, entering how much you're betting, uh, and it'll calculate how much to put on each bet because at minus 670 uh, or something, you know, whatever the odds are at, at your book for Ma Rainey, uh, with Mank then at 20 to 1, uh, you, can, you can create a, a pretty good hedge there where if either of those win, you're, you're profiting. So um, be sure to be on the lookout for that. And that's, that's the way you have to approach a number of these categories. You know, there's going to be a, a chalk favorite. That's probably the right play. Sometimes they're so overvalued that you just don't bet them. Um, but a lot of times there will be value on like the chalk favorite and also, you know, one of the long shots if they're not properly uh, ordered by the betting market. So sometimes you'll hear us say, you know, to bet, you know, two different bets. It's not because we're trying to, you know, be wishy-washy. It's just, that's how you, 
um, that's how you kind of lock in your value. You know, uh, I've done that with best picture the last few years, just fading the, the, the favorite and betting on, you know, the number two and the number three, and it's worked out really well. Um, so that's just an example uh, of that. So yeah, Ma Rainey and Mank for makeup and hairstyling. Let's go to that sound. There used to be two of these sound categories. Now there is one and the nominees for best sound of the singular sound of metal. Minus 2,500, the favorite. Mank, 10 to 1. Soul, 10 to 1. Greyhound, 20 to 1. And News of the World at 33 to 1. Katie, Sound of Metal has the word sound in it. The category is best sound. There's only one sound category now. I mean, this has got to be Sound of Metal, right? I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. I agree. Yeah. Obviously that's why these odds are so <laughs> juiced is because it is the clear favorite. And like you said, sound is in the actual title, but for those who have no idea what sound of metal is just for some context, it is a film about a drummer who starts to lose his hearing and it goes through that journey with him. It is honestly a little bit intense, perhaps triggering for some folks, but uh, very beautifully done because you're going back and forth with him as he's experiencing that loss of hearing. So obvious favorite in this one. I think Raybon is trying to get an Emmy here, setting up the best sound about how the mixing and the, you know, the editing have been combined into one. He set that up perfectly. What the hell's going on Academy? Huh? What's going on here? So, you know, if you didn't know what mixing and editing is, we don't have to explain to you that some of it happens on set and some of it happens in a studio. But what people in the industry are probably pissed off about if you're actually in that industry is that now you have to share this award and maybe the other team is not holding up their end of the bargain. To me, uh, it's a complete stay away. I heard Sound of Metal was actually the best movie uh, out there this year. I, I kind of disagree. A Star is Born. There was a little bit of a hearing loss there. Uh, Lady Gaga's in it. One of the great movies I've seen that didn't win anything like 1917. So I'll stick with that being my favorite uh, going deaf music movie. No, you're right. Sound is in this. It's an extremely, extremely high price. I am going to sit back. I'm going to lay off. And if anybody else wins this, we are absolutely betting every underdog in 2022. So let's see how the voting crowd reacts to mixing and editing being pushed together. Yeah, this is a tough one because this is one where you really don't have, you know, prior data to truly rely on because of how the, the category is now uh, changed from the two categories. So uh, I don't have much here other than saying, if you look at the best picture nominations, Sound of Metal is one of the eight this year. And they usually, if you kind of look back at the Oscars, each film kind of has its niche where they usually end up rewarding it. And, you know, I would, that's essentially the narrative that I would kind of roll with here with Sound of Metal. You know, it's maybe it wouldn't have gotten both sound categories had they been split. Uh, but I think because it's a Best Picture nomination, because you don't really see any other standout uh, area where it's, uh, you know, a front runner. I think that's why the odds are so high. So this is one uh, I may, I probably will pass on as well. It's minus 2,500. I don't really see a ton of value there and I don't really have uh, enough data to, to truly be confident in weighing that much juice. So, um, you know, I would pick down to metal, but uh, not really one I recommend uh, betting on. I think you have a lot better options. Uh, let's get into best visual effect. 
and the nominees for best visual effects, Tenet clocking in first at minus 560, The Midnight Sky at plus 275, Mulan 17 to 1, Love and Monsters 25 to 1, and The One and Only Ivan also at 25 to 1. This one's interesting because we have a couple of, usually we see this in like the, the shorts, but we, we have a couple of these that they're, they're not nominated anywhere else. Love and Monsters, The One and Only Ivan. Uh, Colin, you got anything on best visual effects? Uh, it's kind of amazing that we don't see a Star Wars or an Avengers, like a Marvel. It's just crazy that that's not in. I mean, we finally have a year where none of that is in, but that's that's pandemic life for you. So I'm sure next year it'll be something different. Listen, Tenet should easily win for visual effects. Uh, my favorite, I'm a Christopher Nolan freak, but uh, my favorite movie because for visual effects, because Elizabeth Debicki stands six foot three. John David Washington is five foot nine. And I couldn't tell that the entire movie. So the visual effects were perfect there because I never knew there was such a discrepancy in height. Plus, John David Washington absolutely beats the shit out of a guy in a kitchen with a cheese grater. That couldn't have been real. That had to be visual effects. So all joking aside, no, uh, the the technical quality that they put in uh, to teach people what a pincer is and how you know trains are running in opposite directions every single scene of that movie there's something happening in reverse and you just don't even notice and that's because they did an amazing job in visual effects yeah and i can't go against the chalk here with tenet either um you know it is i think it's nominated only twice uh but i do think it takes home this category the gold derby editors uh, agree unanimously uh 100 uh, are backing Tenet, and we've only had one time. So it's it's been, uh, there is about 11% chance based on the past data that they are wrong in this case, uh, but that gives you about 89% implied odds for Tenet, and minus 560 is about 85%. So but you still have about 5% of value there on, on Tenet based on the implied odds, even if you're kind of factoring in that error rate. Like if there is something unexpected, it'll, it would be midnight sky. Um, that's the consensus number two, but I don't see enough value uh, on midnight sky at plus 275. I would bet tenant up to about minus 700, which is about 87.5% uh, implied odds. So I'm with you, Colin. I think tenant's going to take it home. All right, let's get into a good one. Best original screenplay. And the nominees for best original screenplay Promising Young Woman at minus 455, the big favorite. The Trial of the Chicago 7, plus 275. Minari, 14 to 1. Judas and the Black Messiah, 33 to 1. And Sound of Metal also at 33 to 1. This one is interesting, Katie, because Promising Young Woman, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Minari. This is a screenplay award. These are three best picture contenders. And the odds are really spread out for this uh, screenplay award. How do you see this one playing out? Yeah, it definitely is interesting. And this is also the first time in history that all five nominees in this category are also nominated for Best Picture, which is an interesting wrinkle that I'll get to in a moment. But before I dive in, I want to preface this by saying that I think Promising Young Woman is more likely to win this award than Trial of the Chicago 7, namely because Promising Young Woman um, 
shares a lot of similarities with Jordan Peele's Get Out, which won this award three years ago. Both of these scripts are very sharp social critiques. Promising Young Woman has drawn a lot of controversy because it deals specifically with sexual assault um, and its ending has sparked said controversy. But Emerald Fennell's take is so unique on the surface that I believe this script should win this award. That said, I do see betting value on Trial of the Chicago 7. This is completely theoretical, but as we've mentioned throughout this podcast, voting has become increasingly volatile for the Oscars ever since the Academy expanded its voting body, which started after Oscar So White in 2015. It's basically increased its membership by 50% since then in an effort to add more women and diverse voters. Um, But because this is the first year where all five of these nominees are also nominated for Best Picture, I have a hunch that voters will have zigged on Best Original Screenplay, where they zagged on Best Picture. Now, I do think that of the underdogs for Best Picture, Trial of the Chicago 7 shouldn't be slept on. We will get to that later. But if we believe Nomadland does prevail as the heavy, heavy betting favorite for Best Picture, then I think voters will aim to reward longtime Academy favorite Aaron Sorkin, which is why I like the value on Chicago 7 as the slight underdog in this category. See, now, Katie, like everything you said made like I totally agree and it made a ton of sense but I kind of set you up because I know Colin Wilson is going to come in here and just wax poetic about Minnery and, and try to convince everyone why Minnery is the choice over over the trial of the Chicago 7 so Colin just 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 do it listen it's all just, about Minnery here I I, I like I, <laughs> your love affair at this yeah film. I know and I don't want to I don't want to go into things that I've already said on the podcast and I won't but I will say this the movies that continue to show division between race, age, and wealth class and how those barriers come down, I think are the ones in the future that are going to win the most awards. Just, just say it, Colin. Just say it. Just say Minari, it. Minari, 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 this year's Parasite. Just I'm sorry, Minari. Just say it. Just say it. Minari, <laughs> Minari is absolutely going <laughs> to win this award because, uh, listen, it was ineligible for the Writers Guild and for the Globes. We can get into the restriction as to why it wasn't. It's because I believe for the Globes, you have to have a certain amount of spoken English versus foreign language in it. And because Minari is like completely almost all in Korean, unless they're at the chicken plant, chicken sexing and checking out if the chicken's a female or a male. Like there wasn't a lot of English in this movie uh, besides the crazy ass, you know, run with the cross down the street. That actually does happen in Arkansas. Listen, the movie did pull six BAFTA noms. It pulled 10 critics choice. So when Minari has been eligible, it has shown that it has some muscle to flex. So, uh, you know, I think this is a major contender in a lot of categories. It's not getting talked about. Minnery may be on the outside looking in for best picture, uh, but I think there should be major steam here. And there's reasons why. Lee Isaac Chung, crazy enough, I need to check. I think him and I grew up at the exact same time in the exact same city, uh, directed the film, wrote the film, and that follows in the footsteps of former best original screenplay winners for Moonlight and Almost Famous. Very recent winners of this category where the director was the writer of the content. Oscar Metrics gives a 12% chance to an ineligible Writers Guild entry. That's Minery, right? So when I calculate 12%, you guys have to know your odds. You're going to come, you're going to go listen to other podcasts and listen to them bullshit about how I think and I feel. Don't listen to that. It's all about number. It's about money. It's about percentages. So Oscar Metrics says a Writers Guild ineligible has a 12% chance 
to beat their peers that were nominated. And the favorite is 67%. Let me translate that, get your calculator out. Minari should be bet down to plus 733. Promising Young Woman is a hit at minus 200 if it happens to fall. And that's the way I'm betting this. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually in a similar boat. I think we kind of all agree that, and Katie alluded to it, you know, Promising Young Woman is the most likely to win this category. However, it is wildly overpriced right now. And that's how you have to bet these awards. I'm back because um, I think you gave me a, a fake number the other day. It doesn't sound like me. I know. So I spent a few hours composing a like very witty, very romantic text. And then I sent that text to an oil rig worker called Red. Was he into it? Surprisingly into it. It was like immediately inappropriate, but it's not going to work out because of the oil rig. So promising young woman right now at minus 455, that is implying about a 82% chance that it wins. That is overvalued. I have it, I have it pretty close to your odds, Colin. I have it about 70, 15, 15 between the three. So trial of the Chicago seven for me is still a little bit overvalued, even though it's at plus 275. I would want trial of the Chicago five, seven to actually climb to about plus 570. Um, because my one concern with trial of the Chicago seven is this, I'm, I'm with you, Colin, uh, on the, on the minery, you know, ineligibility kind of creating some variance, but at the same time, I am with you, Katie, that, you know, promising young woman could get upset here by trial of the Chicago seven. My issue though, is that because minery has been ineligible, we have, we don't know exactly where it stands in relation to promising young woman, but we have seen as a result of that. Promising Young Woman go head-to-head versus Trial of the Chicago 7 in a number of different award shows. BAFTA, Critics' Choice, Writers Guild, The Satellites, the Online Film and TV uh, Awards. Promising Young Woman has won five. Chicago 7, only the Golden Globes did Trial of the Chicago 7 go head-to-head with Promising Young Woman and take home the victory uh, in in the screenplay category. So I think that when it comes down to it, voters do prefer Promising Young Woman over Trial of the Chicago 7 to a certain extent. I just don't know where Minnery fits into that exactly because we haven't seen it. But you look at Minnery, their screenplay noms, when, you, when they've been nominated for some of the, you know, the smaller, you know, the regional uh, Critics' Choice uh, Awards and things like that, they're seven and three. They've won seven of the 10 I've calculated and it was just me going on Wikipedia and going to that list where they list all the awards and just taking note of every one of the minery wins and losses that weren't like the major awards. They're, they're seven and three when it comes to taking home screenplay awards. Uh, we'll see what happens in the American Spirits, which uh, should have taken place by the time we you guys are listening to this. But uh, that's a pretty big force to be reckoned with. So minery, I think, has is the value bet in this in this triumvirate here. I think Minnery is at plus 1,400 right now. I would bet that all the way down to plus 570. I would need minus 230 to think about Promising Young Woman. And then I would need plus 570 as well to think of trial. So I'm essentially giving Minnery and trial at Chicago 7 the same odds. Uh, and uh, I put Promising Young Woman around uh, 70%. So Minnery, 14 to 1. Love the value here. I mean, the rabbit hole I went on. And this is another thing I found. I'm just kind of really digging into this this year. A lot of times that can be the difference maker when you look back at some of the upsets, some of the spots where experts were wrong, you know, just categories where there's been a lot of uncertainty. You start looking at those, you know, more minor 
you know, film festivals, which are taking place and no one even realizes it because they don't really get any publicity. Those things add up. And a lot of times you'll see the ones that went on to win. It would be it would have been a lot more obvious if you had just looked at those. And there's not like any specific precursor necessarily. It's just more of a kind of uh, quantity, I think, thing here. So like it's the it's the hit rate and it's just the number of nominations and awards. So Minari, again, seven out of 10 on those on those smaller things uh, got a chance for voters to look at, you know, Minnery versus Promising Young Woman and say, you know what, it wasn't eligible at a lot of the other things I voted at, but I prefer it. So um, I think Minnery right yeah. now for me is the only bet. Yeah, by the way, I, I do agree with this. I like it as a long shot. And I think Minnery is going to continue to be a wild card as we get deeper into these big categories. Yeah. Yeah. And that's perfectly said. So it's a wild card. And so that's why you're probably going to hear us recommending Minnery. Collins love for it, notwithstanding. It's a great you know, long shot bet in a lot of these categories, you don't have to hit all of them because, you know, let's say you're betting the same amount of units on each, whatever category you're betting on, you hit just one of these minery, like 14 to ones and your whole Oscars is made essentially. Let's move to adapted screenplay and the nominees for the 2021 best adapted screenplay award, Nomadland minus 400, the father, Three to one. Cheers. Oh, did I give everything I own for a glass of whiskey? Don't you agree? Borat, subsequent movie film, eight to one, one night in Miami at 14 to one. And the white tiger bringing up the rear at 33 to one. Katie, what you got on this one? So only twice over the past 11 years since the Oscars flipped to preferential voting for a best picture, which means they're ranking their picks, not just selecting one. Only twice over that 11 year span has the winner of Best Picture not also taken home the screenwriting award that they're nominated for. So we'll get into the Nomadland discussion for Best Picture later, but all you need to know right now is that it's a heavy favorite in that category. I personally am not willing to pay up for that because I think that category is going to be more open than people and the odds reflect. but that said, I'm way more willing to pay minus 400 for Nomadland to win here um, than for Best Picture, which is really the only reason I am even touching this category. That's actually a very sharp take. It's like essentially arbitrage. Like you're, if you think Nomadland wins Best Picture, this is correlated. You're getting better odds here. You're laying less juice. I like it. Yep. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. The way to play this is Nomadland, but I'm also going to back that up with the one the one underdog that I think could win. And, and I mean, the winning percentage is is pretty even when you, no matter what the genre is. And I think when you talk about Oscar metrics and what they say, the analytics to look at is uh, you know, the trend over the past couple of decades is that more fiction, it used to be all fiction films all the time. And now nonfiction is starting to take over, but the winning percentage is still the same in the category. So the genre doesn't matter because the winning percentage is the same. But if you look at true recent trends for adapted screenplay, it's really a reflection of our current social climate. I mean, I think this is the category where you can get away. You have a Jojo rabbit winning this award while putting on display the stupidity of the Nazi movement. Uh, through that was the a great film, by the way. I enjoyed that film a lot. Not talked about enough. And, and <laughs> that, like, yeah, if you haven't seen Jojo rabbit, it's un- very under the radar, but a great film. Yeah, and now the director is, is doing uh, the biggest episodes on the Mandalorian. Uh, talk about skyrocketing career. Uh, Black Klansman, uh, 
I went into that movie, you know, a Spike Lee movie. I just figured their Spike Lee expectations was absolutely blown away. Uh, superb about the infiltration of Adam Driver getting into the KKK. Uh, Adam Driver, also known as future best actor, Katie Rich Creek will dump the savings truck the day that Adam Driver is finally nominated for best actor. Look how old you've become. Maybe I'm in the minority here, but like, and I'm a big Spike Lee fan, but like Black Klansman, it's like we got some great actors, we got a great premise. I just thought it was too Spike Lee out. Like I just thought it was too Spike Lee. I thought it was too many like scene, like current scenes interspersed in the movie, and like too many rotating cameras and just weird. I don't know. It was just too Spike Lee for me. Like I, and then you had the KKK in the title. It was just, it was, just, it was not. It was too Spike, too spiked out for me. Like on my list of Spike Lee films, that's that's near the bottom. So, and then Moonlight follows in the same path of presenting a character dealing with the struggles of growing up in today's world in a society that doesn't accept who he thinks he is, you know, emerging and finding out who he is. So uh, what is the hot topic going on in our society? I mean, there's a lot. One of the things that does get mentioned up there that is apparent right now is the division of wealth class uh, in our country. And it's growing and it's growing and it's growing division between middle class, lower middle class and upper class. And I think two movies really kind of call that out here. Nomadland and the white tiger. Uh, They did an excellent job of trying to reach across the fence to show people what life is like on their side. I think Katie is exactly correct. If you're going to bet Nomadland for best picture, these are the better odds. I'm backing it up with a half unit bet on the white tiger, which is the same take nomad land. This is the best price you're going to get. If you like it for best picture, back it up with a big long shot on the white tiger. Well, this is interesting. Cause I actually got one that's not on either of you guys' radars. I'm going with the father at plus 300. And I agree. It doesn't quite fit into that same narrative uh, that you just spoke about. So eloquently, I don't need any help from anyone. All I want is for everyone to fuck off. But when I look at the, the experts, they have Nomadland about, about two-thirds uh, to win. So that gives me a little bit of pause, you know, backing it at, at minus 400, which is – it's better than the best picture odds, don't get me wrong, but it's still about an 80% chance implied to win. I'm not sure if it's that high. Uh, we have 30% of the experts choosing uh, the father. But here's what really caught me because I, I can still make the case – for Nomadland over the father, you know, Nomadland has the head-to-head wins over the father at, at Critics' Choice. The father did win over Nomadland at the BAFTA, but that's a little more, you know, British leaning. I'm not sure how well it's going to translate. Um, but I looked at the editors on Gold Derby, and remember, these, these, are, these people are generally spot on, and they're disagreeing with the experts, but, like, not just disagreeing. Nine of the 11 editors are going with the father, including the nine who updated their picks most recently. So I don't know if they're just overrating the BAFTA, because again, I still, I do think that's a little overrated in this case, but when you're talking about plus 300 for a pick, that's getting 82% of love from industry experts. Like I'm not going to fade that. So uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to pass on Nomadland. It's another one of those situations where it's the most likely one to win. I totally agree. Um, but I, I just can't ignore that, you know, these experts are on The Father. And The Father was, you know, it was one of the last movies to come out. So I do think that some people and some predictors and markets are sweeping on it in certain spots just a little bit. Uh, I'm going to roll with it at plus 300 and, uh, and hope it pays off. 
All right, let's get into best cinematography and the nominees. Nomadland minus 400, Mank plus 350, News of the World 14 to 1, Judas and the Black Messiah 17 to 1 in the trial of the Chicago 7 at 20 to 1. Colin? Yeah, I mean, for me, Nomadland um, from, a cinem- from a cinematography standpoint, really hit home with me. People that don't know before I was at the Action Network, I flew 200 times a year and saw the world. And there's a scene where Frances McDormand is in the Avenue of the Giants, uh, north of San Francisco, where she's walking amongst the trees. Uh, There is a specific tree that is big enough for you to crawl in and live. Uh, my, My most famous family photo is me and my kids in that tree. It's like bigger than a two story house. Cinematography wise, I mean, that's what I've got from a cinematography standpoint. This is not 1917. This is not Deacons. Uh, there is no powerhouse here in this category. Um, so to me, I, I don't, this isn't a precursor to winning best picture. Uh, it's a no play for me, but I will say that Mank is most nominated. It's got a lot of Hollywood uh, uh, ties to it. And uh, that's the one that if I was going to take some money here, that's the one that I would hit. I just think there's no way you're not giving Nomadland. Like, Nomadland is the talk of the season. This is its award. Like, I, I think it's got to get this one. I mean, the numbers back it up. 11 of the 12 or 92% of Critics' Choice winners uh, in this category have gone on to win at the Oscar. Nomadland won at the Critics' Choice. Uh, it's got uh, over 90% of the expert vote. Uh, anything with more than... 63% has been undefeated. So there's really nothing to point me toward an underdog. I, I think this is no man lands category. I think minus 400 is actually low uh, in this one or for Nomadland. I'd bet that up to about minus 900. That's one where I actually think the juice a little well. So they I'm did, rolling with Nomadland here. They did a fantastic job of filming some of the most beautiful parts of the United States. And funny enough that the city uh, that went underneath, uh, you know, because the factory left town, uh, in case you didn't know within an hour, that is now where the Tesla factory is. So it's, it's kind of interesting that that is a ghost town and now Tesla has put their factory there. Uh, so I'm sure that, you know, that town doesn't exist. It didn't have a zip code anymore, but now it does. And, uh, I'm not sure if that's Tesla related, but I found that that entire part of the story completely interesting, but I, I, Nomadland hit me there at the fact that they did a really good job. Uh, of when she went from job to job showing how beautiful parts of the United States are. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we just talked about adaptive screenplay with Nomadland. And like, if you just step back and think about what Nomadland is and what it, like what it is as a movie and what it is to this award season, like I could, you know, cinematography, I think that that should be a lock. like screenplay. Nomadland isn't necessarily a screenplay movie. It's a cinematography movie. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to entertain any any dogs in this one. Let's go to best film editing and the nominees. Sound of Metal, minus 118. The Trial of the Chicago 7, minus 110. Hmm. Nomadland, plus 650. The Father, 20 to 1. Promising Young Woman, 40 to 1. Whoa, this is another one where these odds just, I mean, you have these, you have essentially like two co-favorites Katie, uh, what are you thinking for best film editing? Uh, I'm going to go with a little bit of a square take again here when we're splitting the how this is weighted between Sound of Metal and Trial of Chicago 7. 
I'm also talking about Trial of the Chicago 7 quite a bit on this episode. I promise I, I, I like some of these other bets. It just happens to be one I'm drawn to in some of these categories, and this is one of them. So first, all the credit goes to our colleague Colin Whitchurch for this nugget. Uh, but between their drama and comedy categories, the American Cinema Editor Awards have recognized the eventual winner of this Oscar in 13 of the past 20 years. And Trial of the Chicago 7 took the Eddie for drama editing this year, which it makes a lot of sense. Unlike Sound of Metal, Chicago 7 doesn't have a singular point of view that you're watching the entire movie. It flips between a ton of different people. It also focuses on different storylines um, and it flexes between those. It's the, obviously it's the trial, it's the flashbacks to the riots, it's the stories of the main characters. And all of that takes quite a bit of masterful effort to edit it together, especially when you consider the fact that the meat of this movie is mostly talking, um, which is really hard to, to put that together in a really compelling way. So I really like this for, for editing. Um, again, perhaps it is a square take, but it is a hill I'm willing to die on. Yeah, it's, this is a tough one for me. Uh, initially I was looking at, you know, just like I was kind of stuck between trial and sound of metal and making the case for each one, but I think I'm actually going to go with the long shot in Nomadland here at plus 650. And that's because, so for one, we've seen the uh, American Cinema Editors uh, Guild Award and the BAFTA, which are two precursors. Um, they diverged in this case. So you had Trial of the Chicago 7 win the American Cinema. You had Sound of Metal win the BAFTA. But a few times, you know, we've seen about 14, 15 percent of the time uh, over these past couple of decades when it diverges, neither ends up winning. And this has also been a, a pretty unpredictable category, even for the experts. You've about 44 percent of the time you've seen a film that's not the considered the front runner by the experts win including films that got 0%, 3%, 14%, and 14% of the experts' uh, vote. So we've seen films that aren't really that, uh, that heralded by experts win in this category quite a few times. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about Nomadland earlier, Katie, where this is the front runner for Best Picture. And we, so we know it's, we know it's well-liked and we know it's very appreciated and maybe even a little underappreciated uh, in a technical category like this, uh, it is getting about 11% of the expert votes. And again, we've seen wins from films with 0%, 3%, 14%, um, barely half of the number ones for the experts have actually won uh, since they started tracking. So, you know, it's, it's pretty split between Sound of Metal and, and Trial of Chicago 7, but we do see 11% of the experts with, uh, with Nomadland and uh, there's some other precursors that I like as well going with that. So I'm going to go Nomadland at plus 650. I actually agree with you because as we were approaching this category, after talking about Nomadland in the context of screenplay and cinematography, and I saw the plus 650, I was like, wow, maybe this should also be included in how we're discussing ways to invest in this movie without yep. vetting it for best picture. So I like that take. And it makes a lot of sense too, if, if you think Sound of Meadows is a chalk for that, uh, for the Sound Award, because um, like you know, then it, you, you know you don't feel like the the voting body has feels like they have to give it to the Sound of Metal. I think your Trial of Chicago Seven is definitely in play as well, but I, it's it's tough when you have two two uh, nominees that are both favorites at you know 
better than minus a hundred juice. Right. So it's like better than even money. So um, yeah, I, I think you just go with the long shot here. If not, probably stay away because you're not really getting value, good value on minus 118 and minus 110 for two favorites. That's already over 100% implied probability right there. So, This is Action Network podcast producer Matt Mitchell here to tell you our friends at BetMGM have a great new sign-up offer for our listeners, a $600 risk-free first bet. Here's how it works. If you don't already have an account at BetMGM, just sign up, make your first deposit, and place that initial wager. If the bet wins, you get all the money. If it doesn't win, BetMGM will refund you in free bets up to $600. It's that simple. Just click on the link in this episode description to get started. BetMGM has been a great podcast partner, and they've got all the features gamblers like us love, like live betting and daily odds boosts. Plus, they're compatible with BetSync, so when you place a wager at BetMGM, that bet can automatically be tracked in your action app. So open an account today and make your first bet risk-free up to $600. Just click on the link in this episode description to get started. Must be 21 or older and physically located in Michigan, New Jersey, Colorado, Indiana, West Virginia, Iowa, Virginia, Tennessee, Nevada, or Pennsylvania. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado and Nevada, 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-270-7117 in Michigan, 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, or 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia. BetSync not available in Nevada. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. Let's keep it moving. Best director and the nominees, Chloe Zhao, Nomadland, huge favorite at minus 3,335. David Fincher from Mank, 10 to 1. How can I put this nicely? They're just waiting to load you. Remind me never again to work with a washed up alcoholic. Duly noted. Lee Isaac Chung, Minari, 17 to 1. Emerald Fennel, Promising Young Woman at 20 to 1. And Thomas Vinterberg from Another Round at 25 to 1. Colin? Yeah, I mean, for me, Chloe Zhao. Uh, but I have to admit, I am completely shook, completely shook that Sam Mendez did not win for 1917 last year. Since 2000, only four Directors Guild Award Best Directors did not align with the Oscars. Uh, 1917 was a technical masterpiece. So I'm laying off. She should absolutely win it for Nomadland, but I won't be betting this category. Katie? So of the long shots I've mentioned so far, this is probably my favorite of the bunch. Uh, Chloe Zhao won Best Director at the DGAs, which historically should be in her favor um, in her for her chances to win at the Oscars. But as Ben Zosmer of Oscar Metrics, who we've talked a lot about so far, has highlighted 89% of DGA winners go on to win the Oscar too. However, and this is a big however, four of the past 10 DGA winners have not won at the Oscars, including Sam Mendes for 1917 last year, which we just talked about. I think all three of us are shook on this call. This was a category I actually faded Sam Mendes in last year, except I went with Tarantino called that incorrectly. Yeah, I don't know. There, there are just two non-historical factors that I think could come into play for voters here. The first is that Mank was a project started by David Fincher's late father. Um, it's also about the writing of one of the greatest movies of all time, Citizen Kane. So I'll be the first to admit that I have probably leaned a little bit too much on narrative here, but generally I do think that this 
factors into how voters think about the categories overall and how to award different movies. Um, so I'm placing a, a small wager on, on Fincher. Yeah, and that is the, you know, the first runner up. So definitely understand that. Um, I, I was real shook from Mendez last year. Um, and it felt like the same thing with Chloe Zhao, you know, went on the favorites podcast and, you know, talked about, and we'll get to this, but, you know, fading Nomadland for, for best picture and thinking, okay, you know, for best director, it's a little shakier, you know, Zhao has been considered a lot for the, the, the award season. So I went back and I tried to see if we could see it coming with Mendez and, I'm, I must say I'm a lot less shook uh, about Mendez after looking into the numbers a little bit more because last year when Mendez was you know, considered the you know, prohibitive favorite, he actually wasn't getting you know, all of the support on Gold Derby, like unanimous support the way he should have been at that favorite. Um, Chloe Zhao is. But more importantly, again, it's these, it's these smaller award shows and they really tell the difference. So Last year, Sam Mendez was, and this is just me counting up the ones that are listed on his Wikipedia, so there could be even more, but I counted 20 other director nominations um, that Sam Mendez was up for at, at smaller awards uh, shows, and he won five of them, so he won 25%. For Chloe Zhao, I counted 25 of them this year, and she won 23. <laughs> Her only losses were at an you know, Alliance of Women Film Journalists Awards, where she lost Best Woman Director, but won Best Director. And then a London Film Critics uh, Award show where she still won Screenwriter of the Year and Film of the Year. So Chloe Zhao essentially is undefeated this award season. I, I think it continues. Like I, I'm, I was shook of Mendez, but I'm not as shook as I was. I, it's hard for me to, to have any confidence really in anybody else. I will say, I, I do think there is some correlation between director and picture. And so you do like an upset for best picture with, let's say, Promising Young Woman or Minaree, uh, even Mank, which any, any one of those nominees that are on the board, I would say if you can parlay that with the best picture win, you would just have ridiculous odds. Um, so that, you know, I have no problem with that, but I'm back on the Chloe Zhao train. I'm Sam Mendes. That was last year. It's all about Zhao. He's money. It's not like me betting the Jags this fall. Like, <laughs> that was last week's money. I'm going to be on Trevor Lawrence this week. Uh, my, uh, my long shot hopes aside it is very exciting if she does end up winning i believe she's only the sixth female director to be nominated for this category in oscar history so i'm all here for that let's get into best actor the five distinguished nominees for best actor in a leading role are chadwick boseman the late chadwick boseman for ma rainey's black bottom is the big favorite at minus 1,667. And we have Anthony Hopkins from The Father at seven to one. Thank you for everything. Risa Ahmed from Sound of Metal at 14 to one. Steven Yoon from Minaree at 25 to one. And Gary Oldman from Mank at 33 to one. Katie? First of all, I've been a Chadwick Boseman fan since 42. Obviously, he has become beloved within movie culture even before his unfortunate and tragic passing. Um, I do believe he has this locked up. I know Colin Wilson has some additional data to offer you in terms of uh, nominees who are nominated posthumously, but 
That said, there is an argument that there's betting value on Hopkins. Um, per Oscar metrics, a British actor in a British film, which this is, gives a Best Actor nominee a 43% chance of winning. And so at plus 700, the odds give Hopkins an implied probability of 12.5% of winning for his role in The Father. But really what that means is that there's a giant edge between those historical trends I mentioned and the actual odds. And look, I get it. Chadwick Boseman's performance in this movie was absolutely fantastic. The intense scene where he states, God hates you with all the fury in his heart. Jesus doesn't love you. I heard her say, Jesus helped me and you turned your back on me. I'll cut your heart out. Uh, this is some pretty powerful shit. It makes you sit back in your chair. And the acting is so flawless. It, 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 was, it was one of those things where I had to think, let me think of a best actor in my lifetime that had such a powerful scene. I remember just for weeks thinking about Leonardo DiCaprio crawling out of an ice river in The Revenant. Like how many takes do you have to do? You can't see GI crawling out of an ice river. He actually did that, right? Matthew McConaughey's body transformation for Dallas Buyers Club. Ridiculous, just ridiculous levels. And not even Denzel Washington in Training Day had a scene or a line that is what, Bo what, what Bozeman was able to pull off. Tom Hanks in Philadelphia with the challenging part of that role could pull off what Chadwick Bozeman just did. I get it. There's sentiment that a posthumous nomination equals a victory. That's not true. I know that's being said, but only Peter Finch in 1976, Heath Ledger in 2009 have won the award after passing away. Bozeman makes the seventh actor all time with a posthumous nomination. So to throw like the love on Bozeman, uh, the love on Chadwick Bozeman, to throw like some water on it, you still have to pay attention to analytics. You can't get caught up in emotion with all of this. And what needs to have attention is the BAFTAs. The BAFTAs are a huge part of Best Actor, particularly when the winner is British. And it's not just any British guy. It's Sir Anthony Hopkins. So the historical records for Best Actor increase for a British actor when the movie is British produced. Look at The Father, joint production between the British and French. We have a British actor in a British produced movie Per Oscar metrics, that nominee has a 43% chance of winning. Anthony Hopkins is the bet by that percentage all the way down to plus 133. I know that's crazy, but let me tell you what I think is going to happen on Sat. There's going to be two crowds. There's going to be the Chadwick, Bozeman, Posthumous crowd betting, and then there's going to be the Anthony Hopkins crowd betting. And I just think that Hopkins is going to take enough steam on that dog number where it's going to come down, and we've already seen it. I mean, some of the numbers we've seen out there, we've seen Chadwick Boseman go from minus 2,500 down to minus 1,600. And I don't think that's going to continue. Now, Hopkins odds haven't moved that much, but they're going to. I mean, we, I mean, there are some experts and editors that are picking Anthony Hopkins. And, and I think the average casual voter is going to see the name Anthony Hopkins and just automatically write it in as a, as a bet, which is going to move the odds. Money moves the odds, not leaks. So I, I think Anthony Hopkins deserves a bet based on the value of the number, based on the performance. Chadwick Boseman is the win here. But I'm going to wait to see if Hopkins can eat that number down. If he can eat that number down for me, I'll, I'll happily take it. But Anthony Hopkins is a live dog here. Absolutely. Upset alert. I'm kind of hoping people get on Hopkins so I can get Boseman at better odds because I'm looking at the, the predictions and – the top 24 users. So um, Gold Derby also tracks. It's just high. It, it tracks predictions of it's like, you know, 10, five, 10,000 
person user base, or at least, you know, that's the amount of people that actually enter. They probably have a much bigger user base, but they, they, they're, they're top 24 users. So essentially the people in like the top 1%, um, they track those from year to year as well. And um, they, their number one has never uh, actually lost in this category. And they have Bozeman. Um, we've only seen one exception over the past decade where even the expert or editor, you know, number one choice has not won. It was Casey Affleck in 2017. But Casey Affleck didn't just win a BAFTA that year. He won BAFTA, Golden Globe, Critics' Choice, 26 of the 30 of his 32 smaller acting nominations that he was up to. And, and, and he lost the, the Screen Actors Guild. So I just don't like I know Hopkins won the BAFTA, um, but I just don't see his body of work in this particular situation matching like because Affleck, you could argue he should have been the favorite like that, that the one year where it kind of threw everything off. I mean, he, he won pretty, he won 20 some odd smaller things. He pretty much won at every festival. He won three different precursors. He only lost one. Hopkins, meanwhile, he really only has the BAFTA. He lost at the SAG, the Golden Globes, the Critics' Choice. He only won four smaller acting nominations. So I think it's going to be Bozeman. Um, I get it with Hopkins, but I just don't think, it, especially in a year like this, I just don't think, I don't think enough voters will go with Hopkins going Bozeman here. Always agitate somebody with that old philosophy bullshit you be talking. You stay out of my way about what I do and say. I'm my own person. Just let me alone. Let's go to Best Actress. And here are the nominees for Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role. Terry Mulligan from Promising Young Woman at plus 125. Viola Davis from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom at plus 200. Francis McDormand from Nomadland, plus 400. Andre Day from The United States versus Billie Holiday at plus 600. And then Vanessa Kirby from Pieces of a Woman at plus 2,000. Their performances were all outstanding. And before we dive into Best Actress, let's hear from Action Network editor and veteran Oscars gambler Colin Whitchurch was a very interesting take on how to approach this best actress horse race. Uh, I don't know. I've had a sinking feeling all night right up till here. <laughs> Something about it. By far the most interesting of the major categories is best actress. These odds have zigzagged all over the place and current favorite Carrie Mulligan's price actually lists her at plus odds for the first time since early February. Shortly thereafter, she moved to minus 190 and had been around there until recently when Buzz for Viola Davis changed the game considerably. Davis, whose performance as Ma Rainey was the best acting performance of the year across the board and absolutely deserves to win the award, didn't come out of nowhere, of course, but as recently as mid-March, she was tracking around the fourth best odds behind both Frances McDormand and Andra Day, along with Mulligan. An honor by the Screen Actors Guild lowered her odds, but made her far from a guarantee when you consider the fact that the BAFTAs honored McDormand. Further complicating things is the fact that Mulligan wasn't honored by either. And there's only been one time in history where the Academy Award Best Actress winner wasn't honored by either the SAG or the BAFTAs. It happened in 1994, which just so happens to be the first year of the SAG Awards. I know that's a lot to process, but hang on, there's even more to complicate things. Andra Day was awarded by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association for Best Actress Drama at the Golden Globes. The Globes, as you know, split their awards into two categories, drama and comedy musical. But the last time neither of the Globe's Best Actress Awards went to the actress who won at the Academy Awards was 2001. That year, 
Halle Berry won the Oscar for Monsters Ball, while the Globes went to Nicole Kidman for Moulin Rouge and Sissy Spacek for In the Bedroom. The other time that happened was in 1994, the same year the SAGs and BAFTAs got it wrong. So to sum it all up, Mulligan, the favorite, winning this award would mean the Academy Awards Best Actress wouldn't have won at the SAGs, BAFTAs, or Golden Globes, something that's only happened once in history 26 years ago. Given all the chaos, the best advice I can give is to close your eyes and throw a dart. In other words, this is a chance to take a stab on the best odds available to you at the time among the four actresses. That means a bet on day at plus 600 at the time of this recording is the best bet I can offer, but the odds are changing constantly, so whichever of the four has the highest odds at the book of your choice at the time of your wager would work just the same. That's it from me. Good luck betting the Oscars, and back to you guys. All right, so this one is... This is, I mean, this is it. This is the category right here. You have nobody as a better than even money favorite. The favorite is that plus money. Terry Mogan, plus 125. Katie, I'm going to start with you. Who's your best bet for best actress? Uh, first of all, I agree with what Colin was saying. This is a wide open race. So it really just comes down to what odds are available to you and taking the best ones possible. I also like Andre Day um, for very reasons similar to Colin. History favors actors who play historical figures. especially in the best actress category. And that also applies to Viola Davis. So Oscar Magics actually is a very interesting tidbit for when two of the five nominees have played nonfiction instead of fictional characters. You would expect the two nonfiction nominees to win 40% of the time in a five person field, obviously, but historically closer to 50% of winners ha- who have portrayed real life characters end up winning this when it's a two to three in the five person field. The knock on Viola Davis is her age, which I know Colin will get into right now, because historically this award has not favored women in their 50s. That said, we just saw Renee Zellweger buck this trend last year, upset Cynthia Erivo. Renee, I believe, was 51 at the time that she accepted the award. So I'm willing to bet that if any actress is able to follow in that same path, Viola Davis, who is beloved by many, including the Academy, could follow that same path. So I'm actually splitting my bet on this between Viola Davis and Andre Day. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those metrics are what led me to my pick, uh, which is Andre Day. And, 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 you know, if you go through the historical analysis, it's what got us on Cynthia Erivo at 50 to 1 last year, that madness that took the number all the way down, I think, to 12 to 1, maybe 9 to 1 at certain books. It got us all pretty excited. And then next thing you know, I'm looking for my bottle of scotch because I got Renee Zellweger's face up there on top of the stage saying, you love me, you really love me. Like, I'm, just take the award and go, all right? I want to say thank you to you. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I wanted to cash my ticket pretty bad. Anyways, and I think the reason we were on Cynthia Revo is because it fit what Oscar Metric says, play a historical character. So we have two historical characters playing Ma Rainey, playing Billy Holiday. Uh, so for me, those are the only two that you can really consider in this category. The other rule, don't fall between the age of 36 and 60. Yes, Renee Zellweger is now a data point 
on a category that's been around since 1929. The percentages still say the Academy loves to award very young ladies or ladies in their 60s, Jessica Tandy, Jennifer Lawrence, right? I mean, that's what we're looking at here. So the rules are don't follow that age range, play a historical character that leads us to Viola Davis and Andre Day. Andre Day is the pick here for me. Uh, I love Francis McDormand. Ladies and gentlemen, Academy Award winner Francis McDormand. I mean, you're darn tootin'. Fargo is one of the best movies I've ever watched. You betcha. But shitting on your five-gallon drum inside your dinged-up van or taking a full frontal bath in a natural spring uh, in between your shifts at the Amazon warehouse and your potato farms is just not it for me. And the Oscar goes to... Andre Day, six to one, please. Shout out to Andre Day. I actually cashed a 50 to one ticket on her at the Globe. So that was my Arrivo consolation, actually. Like it just came a year later. But uh, shouts to her. Uh, amazing win there at the Globes. This category is so fascinating to me. Um, first of all, I, I think the biggest upset re in recent memory uh, had been Olivia Coleman. And that was in 2019 over Glenn Close. Glenn Close, right. That was, you know, nobody saw that coming. Everyone had close penciled in the experts, 0% Ron Coleman. Um, so again, I, I look back at just, you know, what could we have expected Coleman if we were just looking a little closer? And the answer is definitely yes. She won a BAFTA that year. She won a Golden Globe. Uh, so those are two of the four precursors. She also won 23 smaller awards uh, out of 35. So she was winning at about a two to one clip. Uh, she did lose at the Screen Actors Guild and the Critics' Choice. But here's where it gets really interesting. All four of the, the top contenders, Mulligan, Davis, McDormand, and Andre Day, they each have one precursor. So uh, Francis McDormand won the BAFTA. You have Mulligan with the Critics' Choice. You have Andre Day at the Golden Globes I just mentioned, and then Viola Davis won the sag they don't care nothing about me all they want is my voice and they're gonna treat me the way i want to be treated no matter how much it hurt them so it's split there then it's pretty there's it's all over the place with the gold derby experts i mean they have mulligan as a slight favorite as do the uh as do the odds but they're at like below 50 percent in terms of endorsing her so uh, then you look at some of the, the smaller nominations. No one really stands out too much, but McDormand does have the most at 12. Uh, I have Davis with five, Day with three, and, and Mulligan with seven. So, like, I just keep going back and forth, and I just, just like, after looking at, like, so many different data points and, and charts and trying to model this out, I just decided that it should be, we should treat this as 25. All four of these main contenders have about a 25% chance. Uh, I'm not going to split hairs here. I think it's really, truly up for grabs, just like the precursors are split. I don't think there's enough uh, going in any one direction to really even say, even with the age thing, I mean, six of the past nine have actually been in the 36 to 60 range. I mean, it's just, it's just so hard with this, with this group and what's been happening. So uh, I'm going McDormand at four to one and Andre Day at six to one. Simple as that. They're both under that threshold of anything better than plus 300, essentially, is what I'd take for any of those four. So right now you're getting Davis is at, you know, she's still at two to one. Mulligan's still the, the favorite. So McDormand 
value there. And by the way, I do think McDormand and Day had the two best performances. Like that's why I, I had a long shot on Day at the Globes. But remember, the Globes is a smaller award ceremony. I think it's like a hundred people or something like that. Even under that, don't not too confident that she'll repeat. But I think the odds are better than six to one. And same thing for McDormand. I mean, I think the odds are better than four four to one. And again, this is the film that that's the talk of the season. This is her film. Like she. She acted with a bunch of real people. And like, I think I believe it was even her that like got everything together with, with Chloe Zhao. Like this is this is her movie as much as it is as, as Chloe Zhao. So McDormand at four to one. Great value. Day at six to one. Great value. But really, if the odds shift and things go crazy, anyone you could get for better than three to one, uh, I think is worth the bet. Thank you. Well, and finally, it all comes down to this. The best picture. And the nominees are Nomadland minus 670, The Trial of the Chicago 7 at 6 to 1, Minari 14 to 1, Promising Young Woman 17 to 1, Judas and the Black Messiah 33 to 1, Mank 33 to 1, Sound of Metal 50 to 1, and The Father 100 to 1. We're probably going to have a lot of back and forth on this one. This is, this is the category that most people are interested in. We saved it for last. Howen, I'll start with you. What's the formula? The formula for picking best picture is to have more nominations than the average of your peers. And the bar this year is 6.3 nominations in 2021. Mank is leading the pack at 10. There are plenty of similarities between Mank and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from last year. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year, like had more nominations than anybody. And still it didn't, I think it was fourth on the board and odds for best, you know, best picture. Didn't pull a lot of things. Uh, it, Brad Pitt got a best supporting I got to add this to my Tinder profile. Uh, and I feel like Mank is kind of falling down that same path. It's a movie about the industry. It's got the total number of nominations. But Once Upon a Time didn't even hold a torch to a movie, a powerhouse like Parasite. You know, Mank nope. actually reminds me of uh, the other Netflix movie, that The Irishman. Like, it kind of, doesn't it feel kind of similar where it's like, this is that movie, like this is that Netflix movie and it looks great until a bunch of other movies come out. And then it's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, The Irishman was 23 hours long, too. So, I mean, you could fit in all seasons of True Detective in that time. So, you know, Nomad, <laughs> Nomadland did win Best Flick at the Director's Guild, the Producer's Guild. Best Flick? Is that, is that where you just... It's a well, catch-all. So, I mean, Nomadland did win Best Picture, Best Flick, but that doesn't make it an auto winner here. Uh, the biggest element after nomination size is having candidates in the big boy categories. And this is where I was just choking on 1917 last year. 1917 didn't have best actor, didn't have best actress, best supporting. They didn't have the, they didn't have the categories that some of these others do. You have to have director, you have to have editing, you have to have screenplay. So with that being said, Promising Young Woman has all three of those categories with a best actress nod to boot. This is my long shot to pick to take down Nomad Land. Give me Promising Young Woman. Buy it now because I, I, the more people learn about how crazy this film is, I mean, Parasite was nuts. Last 15 minutes of Parasite, gangbusters, batshit crazy. Promising Young Woman, batshit crazy at the end. So I, I, I feel like we've hit all the big boys director, editing, screenplay, best actress nod. This is my pick. Take it now before the steam comes in. I really like Promising Young Women too. And I first need to apologize to Emerald Fennell. I left her out when we were discussing best director in the context of before this year, there had only been five women who were nominated for this award. This year, there are two. 
Chloe Zhao and Emerald Fennell. I loved Promising Young Woman. That definitely had the wow factor column that you mentioned. It is one of those movies where you don't want to spoil it for other people. So I won't go into details, but I really like this for a lot of the reasons you've already outlined. I'm actually splitting my bet again, between Promising Young Women and Trial of the Chicago 7. So right now I'm just gonna focus on making the case for the latter. So while Best Director is a pretty good predictor of Best Picture, AKA Nomadland should be the favorite for Best Picture considering uh, historical trends and the betting odds favor Zhao winning Best Director, which we've covered deeply so far. But when history has bucked that trend, there's precedent for the winner of Best Ensemble at the SAG Awards pulling off the best picture upset. So since the SAGs introduced the award for best ensemble, which was only a year after they started, this was in 1995, there have been nine instances that the best director winners at the Oscars haven't also won best picture. And in five of those nine instances, the upsets were pulled off by films that also had won best ensemble at the SAGs. Spotlight was the most recent example of this, which was I think about five years ago. This past year, or this year, Trial of the Chicago 7 was this year's winner for Best Ensemble, which is why Aaron Sorkin's film is, again, one of the two dogs I'm taking as long shots in this category, because the common theme for this category is that we are all aboard the fade Nomadland train. Yeah, Nomadland at minus 670, that's an implied probability of 87%. It's the rightful favorite. It should be the favorite. There's no question. But... 87% is really high. And when you consider what's been happening, and again, the preferential ballot, it's different for the best picture. They rank each of the eight films. Then if if the top one gets more than half the first place votes, it's the winner. If not, they keep taking off the the last place one and and redistributing the votes so that uh, essentially there's not this like huge disparity between in like some polarizing film ends up winning. And so this has only been around for about a decade. And that's why I think you have to look at recent trends more than ever with Best Picture. And there really are some crazy ones. First of all, Nomadland is the consensus favorite. It's the number one uh, from the Gold Derby experts, number one from their editors, even number one from when you look at their entire user base. The number one film, the expert number one, has lost each of the past five years in Best Picture. The number one film, according to the editors, has lost in six of the last seven years. And then one of the years it was split. So there was just two number ones at 50-50. So and then the number one film as voted by, you know, the thousands of users has lost in each of the last six years. Nomadland also won a BAFTA. The BAFTA winner has not won the best picture at the Oscars six years in a row, each of the last six years. The first five of the preferential at 105 hasn't won in the last six. So you literally have like all of this, <laughs> this data just saying that like, whatever the number one pick consensus favorite is, it's literally not what's going to win at the Oscars. Now, Nomadland, I think I will say this. I think more so than any of the films of those last five years, I think Nomadland can buck the trend. Uh, it's getting a little bit more support and it is, I think the probability is higher than I would have said for 1917 or Roma or uh, Wawa Land or or films like that. But it just, it just hasn't been happening for these 
for these favorites as it is. And then you look at, okay, which films have been winning? And no surprise, because of the preferential ballot, the number two. The number two films as ranked by the experts has won each of the past five years. Um, there's, been a, there's been one split where there were two number twos, or you could say two number threes, whatever you want to call it. Um, the number two film as ranked by the users has won each of the past six years. Uh, and then we have seen two of the last eight, so a quarter have not had a Best Director nomination. What is this all favor? Trial of the Chicago 7. All of these data points favor Trial of the Chicago 7, which is in perfect position if Nomadland were to slip up. Trial of the Chicago 7, it's a film nobody really hates, even if maybe it's not, like it's not as, it's not as polarizing as a Nomadland, which, you know, some people, hey, there was no real plot, you know, whatever. There was, there's, it just wasn't a lot to it for some people. They didn't appreciate the technical aspects and the cinematography. Then you have Promising Young Woman, another film very polarizing. So for me, Trial of Chicago 7 is like that perfect film, which it was actually favored for part of the season. It, it, it lost that status, but it's that plus 600, six to one. That is that's absolutely nuts for a film that, first of all, again, these number two films, these numbers as ranked by the experts as the number two films in the betting market, whatever. These have been the winners. Yeah. Trial of Chicago 7 has an implied probability of 14 percent at, at six to one i think that should be it should be at least double that uh, if not more and the oscar goes to i think trial of the chicago seven is the number one bet here and then i think i'm going you guys are going with promising young woman i'm going to go with minery as my like long shot hedge with uh with trial of the chicago seven uh, i do think that because as colin alluded to earlier minery has been ineligible for certain awards and, and categories. We haven't seen Minnery go head to head with Proud of Chicago 7 and Nomadland quite as often as we would want to kind of completely discount it. It is getting 11% of the Gold Derby expert votes. Um, we have seen about 11, 12% of films in that range win at the Best Picture. It did win five of eight, you know, foreign language, international film type awards that it was up for. And it did win three of its 11 best picture, like actual best picture, not foreign or international, but, you know, film uh, nominations it was it was in. But it really has been it's been rare that it's been up against, you know, Promising a Woman and Trial of the Chicago 7 at the same time. And I do think Min Minari is another one of those films that it's not very polarizing. I do I, I do think that it will probably end up third place. I think like in, in a lot of people's votes. And I think probably the Chicago seven will end up second in a lot of votes. Um, so essentially we're betting on Nomadland being polarizing enough that that second place winner wins. And then we're hedging with, I, I, I'm going Minari just cause I think it's less polarizing than promising young women. So what you guys think? You got to get off this Minari. So you're going to make, I, I'm <laughs> sitting here. I, I'm literally, while you were going off cycling through multiple numbers, multiple sites <laughs> looking for prices. And I will just say that Minery at one place is four to one. Another place is 22 to one. Promising Young Woman at one place is four to one, 20 to one and another. I, so here, I, here's the takeaway. First off, yes, I'm going to go throw a max bet, which I think is going to be limited about 150 bucks. But I'm going to go get Minery with you, all right? And I've already taken out my, my 20 to one Promising Young Woman. So I think 
the best option here is if you have outs, if you have places to go, I think you avoid Nomadland. You go trial the Chicago seven, try to get that six to one or better. It's out there. Minery, I don't know, 10 to one or better, Chris, what would you say? Right? Yeah. I'm going Minery down to about, yeah. I mean, anything in the double digits. Yeah. Yeah. And and promising young woman is out there at 20 to one. I think this is a crapshoot. I think we absolutely have a chance here to get Nomadland beat and it does not hurt. You want to go 0.33 units or you want to go a half unit and put one and a half units out on this? Like it's a freaking golf bet, you know, like, you know, we have to hit so many golfers to try to win, but you're only spending two units. I think that's the plan here. Listen, I, I don't, we haven't talked about Mank, the father, Sound of Metal, anybody, I, I think no shot at winning here. Uh, I don't think Mank is going to get enough outside the Hollywood people that vote just for Hollywood movies. I don't think they're going to get enough votes. I don't think anything outside of Minery, Promising Young Woman, and the trial of Chicago has a torch to try and beat Nomadland. Yeah, I agree. I'll, I'll make this really quick point. Um, by the way, for the case for the trial of Chicago 7 winning on preferential voting on Gold Derby of the 27 experts that have Nomadland ranked first, there are 16. Um, and of those 16, 10 have trial second. So I do think that's a really strong argument in, in the case of trial. And one of the things I, I should have mentioned off top, but one of my favorite reasons for using this Gold Derby data is because even more so than they are accurate at predicting winners among the contenders in each category, they are even more accurate at predicting the non-contenders. So if a nominee does not even have a single Gold Derby vote, whether it be like an expert or editor or whatever, the, the chances of it winning are like infinitesimally small. Like if you go back over the past decade, uh, I think you can count on under, you know, five fingers, the amount of times that that's happened. So the, the, the hit rate on just, if something is not, if it's getting a zero from gold derby, you can pretty much discount it with a, a, a very high confidence uh, interval. And so when you look right now at the predicted potential winners for best picture, The ones that are not getting any love are The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, and Sound of Metal. And no film has won without at least 7% of the expert vote. And that's what's kind of got me on Minari over Promising Young Woman. Right now, it has only 3.6%. Now, if somebody switches their vote, all it would take would be, you know, one vote kind of being switched around and that would climb over the hump. So I'm not completely discounting it. But at this point, you know, we've seen the, the second ranked film have overwhelming success. And we have one instance where they were tied and, you know, Minery kind of fits in the, the, the probability range, whereas Promising Young Woman doesn't. That's really why, you know, we're kind of focused in on the films that we are for each category. It's because that's one thing we can do very reliably with this data, with this Gold Derby expert data is remove and eliminate the films that are not in contention. And it makes things a lot easier. Completely agree. Let's get this money. Get this money. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. All right, that's going to do it for our Academy Awards Gambling Spectacular. All right, you've really made this a night to remember in every way. Now let's go party till dawn. As a reminder, our NFL Fantasy Flex team returns Monday for our NFL Draft betting preview episode. 
And we'll also have our Kentucky Derby betting preview next Friday. Uh, and check out the Favorites podcast with Chad Millman, this week's Thursday Thunderdome episode. Thanks to BetMGM, the official odds provider of the show. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Helps us a lot. Download, listen on Spotify. And we'll catch you next time on the Action Network podcast. For Katie Rich Creek and Colin Wilson, I am Chris Raybon. Good luck. Don't forget to get this money. We're finished talking.